Uh, the topic for this evening in our course on heroes and villains of modern Jewish history, the topic is a villain whose name we don't know. The man who stole the Aleppo Codex. Okay, so the topic is the Aleppo Codex. What is the Aleppo Codex? Let's begin over a thousand years ago. Uh, in the 10th century in Eretz Yisrael, in Tiberias, the Masoretes were active. Who are the Masoretes? They are the doctors of the Masorah. The Masorah being the tradition by which the Torah is written. And these authorities on the Bible were preparing as accurate a text as they possibly could. Moreover, they are adding to the page elements which do not appear in the Torah scroll, notably vowelization, also punctuation, also, at least in some cases, melodic trop, and on the side of the page, the Masoretic notes, little bits of information that guide the reader about the intricacies of the text. Some of this stuff is still preserved in your printed copies of the Chumash that you have today. Not all of it, but some of it. For example, like the Aleph of Vayikra is a little small. So it'll say on the side that it's a small Aleph. And those sorts of things. Kri and Ketiv, Ketiv Kri, where the, the, the pronunciation is different from how it appears on the page. These are the notes of the Masorah. The greatest of the Masoretes was Aaron ben Asher, who died in 960. And his greatest work was not a work that he personally wrote. Well, actually, he wrote the Masoretic Notes. But the Bible itself, the Tanakh, was written under his auspices by a scribe named Ben Buaya. And Ben Buaya had an amazing handwriting, like a laser printer. It wasn't the prettiest script, but it was very, very accurate. And each time he wrote a gimel, it looked exactly the same. And each time he wrote a dal, it looked exactly the same. There was no variation from one appearance of a letter to another. And that kind of perfection is very impressive. It's uh, almost impossible to reproduce. Were the crowns existent in those days? The, you mean the tagim on top of the letters? Yes. So, yes. So, his, this book became known as the Keter Torah, the crown of the Torah. And later, the crown of Aleppo, because it was housed in Aleppo for a long time. But we're not there yet. First, it's in Tiberius. The book is about 500 pages. And when I say a page, it's a- I actually mean a leaf, in the technical sense. And it's a two-sided page. One side is the sturdier skin side of the animal, and the other side is the softer flesh side of the animal. And in the long run, the sturdier skin side will preserve the words and the letters much better than will the softer side. There'll be a lot more of erasure and uh, decomp- decomposition over time on that side of the page. But there are 500 pages, roughly. There are 28 lines per column, three columns per page, per side of the page. And it's the whole Bible, beginning to end, from the base of Beratius... Okay, to the Lamed of Vayal in Chronicles uh, 2. <coughs> this book makes its way to Jerusalem. And it stays in Jerusalem until the year 1099. That was a bad year for Jerusalem. Crusade. The First Crusade, the Christians <coughs> invade and destroy the city and mercilessly slaughter the Muslim and Jewish inhabitants. 
But just before all was lost, the Karite and Rabbinite communities of Jerusalem together cooperated to send this book to Egypt. It was bought by a Jew in Egypt and remained in Fustat, which is basically Cairo, for the next few hundred years. The most important hands that would hold this book, it's Egypt years, it's Maimonides, the Rambam, had possession of the Codex, and he used the Codex as the basis for his writing of the Hilchot Sefer Torah in the Mishnah Torah, the laws for writing a Torah scroll. The Rambam's great-great-great-grandson took the book from Egypt to Aleppo, to Chalab in Syria, sometime in the latter part of the 14th century, so in the late 1300s. The Rambam died in 1204, so about 150 to 175 years later, the book gravitates towards Syria, where it shall remain for nearly 600 years, in the old synagogue of Aleppo. What was the purpose of this book? Well, the purpose of any codex created by the expert Masoretes was to serve as a basis for the copying of further scrolls of the Torah to disseminate an accurate text of the Bible. But that's not what ended up happening. The Codex became a good luck charm, a talisman. As long as the Codex was in the safe possession of the Aleppo Jews, tucked away in the grotto at the back of the synagogue, in a safe, they would be safe. And if anything were to happen, if the Codex were to be moved or somehow damaged, the Jewish community of Aleppo would be in danger. And so they stopped using it. They didn't take it out, not even for uh, occasional use. Maybe, maybe on Yom Kippur, there were rumors that they would take it out on Yom Kippur to read through a few pages. But effectively, it was just squirreled away, not to be read from. It is a protective charm. Yeah. Why was it written in book form? It was a bound book. That yes. Instead of being written as a safer. Okay, the answer is that when you want to have a reference work from which to uh, check other scrolls, or for that matter, write, you know, ab initio a new scroll, the easiest thing is to have a bound book that you could flip through pages and get to the right spot within seconds, as opposed to having to take, you know, 20 minutes to get from one side of another to another of a long, long scroll. Uh, wouldn't, and it, wouldn't it be problematic <coughs> if you did print on both sides to have a scroll? Of course, they never did such a thing. No. They never did. So uh, this was for this was not for the public liturgical reading. This was for reference use, and therefore a codex made more sense. So what was yeah. this really to parshiot tuchot stumot? So so parshiot is one of several important elements that are uh, that are readily uh, noticeable when you look at the page. Why wasn't it ever copied? Okay, so we're going to have to get to that point. In the twentieth century, yeah. What about just maintaining it? If they just hid it in some type of cave, wouldn't water could get to it or whatever? So you're right that occasional usage is better than absolutely no usage. That we know that from from the modern science of preserving books, it's good to flip through it every now and then. But and they did flip through it every now and then, but infrequently and not for any real serious purpose. Uh, that's a good question. The 
people who were doing the job of restoring it in the 1980s did come across uh, spots where it looked like there was a later hand that added ink. That's all I could say. I, I, I can't tell you that there were uh, you know, falsifications or, or good faith emendations, but there, were, there, was the, there was ink of a later hand on some of the pages. Okay. Could be. Okay, now. One more. Yeah. Does that cause a problem with those who say that the Torah was written by Moshe? Because there had to be differences as time went on. Yeah, yeah there, there are there, there are slight differences right. so, between I mean, the Sifra Torah that exists to this right. day. No, but would that shake that belief then? No, no, not at all, not at all. Uh, because we don't have anything that predates this. This is the oldest it gets. Whatever it says, it's the Gospel. This is the Bible of Moses. This is that's that's all there is to it. So, the book is in Aleppo for a long time. The scholarly world is aware of it, its existence, and is interested in looking at it. But the guardians, the chief rabbis of Aleppo, are reluctant to allow anyone to get a little peek, to steal a glimpse. In 1935, Yitzchak Ben-Svi, who will play an important role in this whole story, is a Zionist leader, goes from Eretz Yisrael to Syria, and is given permission to look very briefly at the Codex. And he never forgets it. It's a, it's a moment in his life that he will never forget. and It, it will affect his, his later career. In 1943... The professors of Hebrew University feel that it would be a good idea for this codex to come to Eretz Yisrael, to Yerushalayim, and be under the custodianship of the Hebrew University. (laughs) Now, they understand full well that the Aleppo community is not likely to just give it up. So, short of being able to get it, well, let's at least have a good look at it and maybe photocopy it. And maybe produce a facsimile edition. So they send a fellow, Isaac Shamosh, who was an Aleppo Jew who had moved to Israel, back to Aleppo to see what he can do in terms of uh, acquiring or at least getting access to the Codex. They would not sell it to him, although as he was leaving, some black market uh, operator offered him the Codex for a hefty price. But realizing that this was going to be an act of theft, Shamosh walked away. A few years later, it would look like that was unfortunate. Maybe he should have done something a little devious and paid for it, because the codex would be destroyed. Okay? So, later in 1943, Hebrew University uh, sends Umberto Casuto to Aleppo to look at the codex. They won't let any photocopies be made. They'll allow Umberto Casuto, the great Italian Jewish scholar, 15 minutes to look at the book. Fifteen minutes was then extended into four hours, and the four hours extended into four hours a day for a whole week, each day for a full week. So he got a, a nice chunk of time to spend with the book, to flip through the pages and to take notes, but no pictures. Why no pictures? The answer, if there were pictures taken, then this book isn't so special anymore. Now, of course, the irony is it was intended for you know, mass distribution and, and dissemination of, of, of proper knowledge. And now, instead, it's just a, a, a relic. It's an antiquities item that, if it's copied, suddenly the antiquity itself is not as valuable. Okay, so... Time moves on. 1947. November 29th, 1947. So, it is a day at the United Nations in Flushing Meadow for a vote on partition of Palestine. 
The vote passes, 33 to 13 with 10 abstentions. There'll be resolution 181, Jewish state and an Arab state. The Arabs don't like it. So they riot. There were riots all over the Arab world, especially in Aden, where 87 Jews were killed, and in Syria, notably in Aleppo. The next day, November 30th, the synagogue is burned down, and Jewish shops are looted, Jewish people are attacked, no fatalities, very important, no fatalities. So this was not on the level of the Kristallnacht, but it was pretty bad. And the Aleppo Codex was taken out of its safe and damaged. Taken out, thrown up in the air, pages were flying. The official word was, it was destroyed in a fire. It was destroyed in the fire. No more Aleppo Codex. An obituary for the Codex was written by Kasuto in one of the Hebrew newspapers in Eretz Israel in January of 1948. But, although this story would remain the official story that it was destroyed in a fire until 1960, and in 1960 when it was ultimately announced that the Codex had not been completely destroyed, but rather had been recovered and brought to Israel, that sadly, about 40% of the Codex had been destroyed in the fire, including the most important part, the Torah. It was in Torah Nevi'im Ketuvim, Tanakh, and that the bulk of the Torah, Bereshit, Shemot, Vayikra, Bamidbar, and half of Devarim, was destroyed in the fire. So Baruch Hashem, they were able to salvage the Nevi'im and most of the Ketuvim, but not the bulk of the Torah. That's the story of the Aleppo Codex. Class dismissed. Except the whole story is a lie. Yeah. How significant was the Codex for reproducing the Torah? I'm sure Torah scrolls were written during all this time when it was hidden away. In of course, of course. But we always want to have uh, as ancient, uh, as old uh, a, a copy as possible because antiquity equals authenticity. I mean, whether it should be the case, I don't know. But the, the bottom line is, in the, in, the, in the world of scholarship, antiquity equals authenticity. And if you could have something that's a thousand years old, it's uh, pretty important. So, the story that I just told you never happened. What really happened? There was no state of Israel? <laughs> <laughs> so, there, there are three sins. <laughs> Israel, as it says in the Bible. Three big sins happened here. The first sin. Let's go back to November 29, 1947, and what really happened. The synagogue was attacked. There was a fire. The codex was taken out of its safe. The codex was slightly damaged. But it wasn't destroyed in the fire. In fact, the synagogue Shamus, Asher Baghdadi, came back the next day, and together with his son reassembled the codex and it was fairly intact missing only a few pages here and there they couldn't they couldn't find but they had the codex they reassembled it and now what to do about it well there's a problem on their hands they don't they don't want the authorities in Syria to know that the book survived they'd rather everyone believe that the book was destroyed because if the book was destroyed, then the anti-Semitic regime isn't going to go look for, looking for it because it doesn't exist anymore. But if the regime thinks the book does exist, they'll try to steal it. 
and then either destroy it or, you know, ransom it. So better, nobody should know that the book is intact and the Jews have it. But what do you do? Where do you put it? Call the Mossad. No, that's the problem. So they, they give it over to a, a Christian friend for a few months to hold on to the Codex, just until they figure out where the, the book will have its eventual resting place. Um, so the, while the authorities are on the lookout for it, better Agoy should have it. But after a few months in the possession of a Christian, the book is deposited by the chief rabbis of Aleppo in the hands of Ibrahim Effendi Cohen. FND is a term of uh, royalty, not royalty, but uh, nobility in the Ottoman world. Uh, he, Abraham Cohen was a prominent Aleppo Jew. At that point, on in years and a little bit befuddled. And so the real custodian was his, his nephew, because Ibrahim Cohen had no children. But his nephew, Edmund Cohen, who was a young fellow at that time, became the primary custodian of the book in one of their shops uh, in the marketplace. So, not in a very safe location, but in where you'd least expect it. Therefore, it's safe. It would remain there from the beginning of 1948 until 1957. Who knows that it exists? Well, rumors cir- uh, trickled back down to Eretz Yisrael, so that by March of 1948, there were some scholars in Hebrew University who either knew or had an inclination that the book still was around, that it had not been destroyed in the fire. But for public consumption, the book didn't exist anymore. What's going to be the fate of the book? What's going to be the fate of Aleppo Jewry? What's the fate of Syrian Jewry? What's the fate of all of the Jewry of the Muslim countries? These communities are quickly being destroyed. And where are the people going? Well, some of them are going to Eretz Israel. And some of them are going to the Western countries. Where did the Jews of Aleppo go to? So some went to Israel. Some went to Sao Paulo. Some went to Buenos Aires. Some went to Panama City. Some went to Tokyo. And some went to Ocean Parkway. So, how did Jews get to Israel from Syria? You weren't allowed to go. In fact, how did Jews get out of Syria altogether? Because the regime put tight controls on the Jewish population. So there were basically uh, three options. One is, if you were lucky, you had a second passport. That somehow there was a family connection to another sovereign state, whether it was Turkey or Iran or, or some other country aside from Syria, and you held a second passport, and therefore the regime couldn't uh, detain you indefinitely, you could leave on your other passport. Only a limited number of people had that. Another option was to sneak out. Where are you going to sneak out to? Beirut or Lebanon. Cross the Syrian-Lebanese border illegally, and then from Lebanon, what do you do? Well, so you could have legitimate means of getting into another country, like if you had a visa for, for another country, or you wait for the boat. And the boat left about twice a month. It was a party boat. And it was a little bit offshore. It took a little dinghy to get there. And then it drifted southward. And eventually, southward far enough to you get to Roshanikra, Naria, whatever it might be, Port of Haifa. And then you jump off and you're in Israel. So, a quick boat ride, 
you're in the Holy Land. And that's good because you're in Jewish state, freedom. So many of the people who were involved in the Aleppo Codex saga got to Israel by that means, by that illegal means. In 1957, a Jew was about to leave Syria legally. A rare example. Murad, or Mordechai, Facham. Murad Facham was a cheese merchant in Aleppo, and he uh, was involved in the illegal uh, departure of Jews for other places, cooperating with the, the underground, and he was arrested, and he was tortured by the Syrian regime. They burned cigarette butts on him. So he suffered very badly. He was deported. He was deported to Iran because he had a, a, an Iranian passport, and then he was allowed back into Syria to finish his affairs, to sell off his businesses, but on condition that he leave almost immediately. So here was a rare opportunity of a Jew being forcibly expelled from the country, but maybe it's an opportunity to take with him valuables that otherwise could never escape, notably the Aleppo Codex and another codex. It wasn't just the... Uh, the, the crown of Aleppo, the, the, the 10th century work, was also a 14th century work that he took with him. But nobody remembers that one because we only focus on the more valuable one. So the rabbis, Rabbi Zafrani and Rabbi Tawil, the chief rabbis, go to Edmund Cohen, the chief rabbis of Aleppo. They go to Edmund Cohen, they get him to give Murad Facham the book, he wraps it up in a cheesecloth, stuffs it underneath some laundry, and they drive, and he's driven to the northern border, to the Turkish border. At the Turkish border, he gets to Alexandretta. Those of you who know Indiana Jones and the third one know Alexandretta, okay? And there he crosses, and fortunately, they don't search his possessions. He's able to get through without the, the book being noticed. Who greets him at the border? Isaac Silo. Who is Isaac Silo? He was an Aleppo Jew who moved to Turkey to become the shaykhit for the Jewish community of Alexandretta. But in addition to that, he was an Israeli operative working for the Jewish agency facilitating the escape of Syrian Jews to Turkey and then to Eretz Yisrael. Okay. Silo's boss was Yitzhak Pesel, who was the main Jewish agency figure in Turkey operating out of Istanbul. And Pessel is aware of the fact that Facham has the codex and is giving instructions to Silo. From September through December 1957, Murad Facham is in Turkey with the book, and the Jewish agency officials know that he has the book. On December 16th, he, uh, he arrives in Eretz Yisrael, takes a boat, gets to Haifa. When he gets to Haifa, what happens to the book? Well, all of his possessions are taken uh, into uh, the possession of the customs authority of the state of Israel. So some random clerk now has the book. The book is then transferred to Shlomo Zaman Shragai. Who was Shlomo Zaman Shragai? One-time mayor of Yerushalayim in the early 50s and the head of the Aliyah department of the Jewish agency. The importance of Shragai in this whole story is that Shragai was a rarity. Your average high-level bureaucrat in early Medinat Israel was of what religious persuasion? 
Zero. <laughs> okay. Very secular. So Shragai was a rare example of an Orthodox Jew. He was a Polo Mizrahi, but he rose to the top. He rose to be mayor of Jerusalem and the head of Aliyah. So it's a rare, a, a, a yarmulke wearing Orthodox man, uh, a top level bureaucrat that will play an important role. Shragai has the book delivered to him by customs authorities to his home in Jerusalem. He lives across the street from the Jewish Agency building on Karen Ayasod. And then, this is January 6th, 1958. On January 24th, 1958, Shragai delivers the Codex to Yitzchak ben Svi. Yitzchak ben Svi, who saw the Codex in 1935, is now the president of the State of Israel. He was, would serve as president from 1952 until his death in 1963, second president of the state, close uh, ally of David Ben-Gurion, leading Zionist figure, and he's on the money. What, what denomination is he on? The 200? What, what, I forget what he is. He's on the money. So, Ben Svi gets the book in what capacity? Well, you could say he gets the book as the representative of Medinat Yisrael. Medinat Yisrael equals the Jewish people, and the Codex is, the, is a prized possession of Am Yisrael, therefore he gets the book. Okay? But that's only one explanation. The other is that Yitzchak Ben Svi was the head of the Ben Svi Institute. What is the Ben Svi Institute? It's for the study of the Jewish communities of the Middle East. Here was an elite Ashkenazi Jew establishing an academic institution for the study of the, what in his mind were the primitive communities of the Middle East. That the Ashkenazim academically study their more backward brethren. That, and the, the patronizing attitude of the Ashkenazim to, this, to the Middle Eastern Jews will play an important role in this larger story. Okay, so Ben Svi has the book. Nobody knows that yet or at least only a small number of people know that. It's not until 1960 that Ben Svi announces in public, by the way, we have the Aleppo Codex. The full copy? You're jumping ahead. Okay. So he announces that they have the Codex, and they have roughly 300 pages or 295 pages of a book that at one time had about 500. Okay, that's what they announce. So everyone believes that, well, we thought it was destroyed in the fire, but as it turned out, most of it wasn't. But some of it was. But then, they ask, well, what, what happened to the missing pages? Well, it was destroyed in the fire. But, but no, but not everything was destroyed in the fire, because there are people who have snippets of the Aleppo Codex, Ale- Syrian Jews, who, who, who put it in their wallet as a good luck charm, or have it in their house as a, as a protective mechanism, so maybe, maybe not everything that is missing from the Benzvi Institute is destroyed, but if you, if you search the world, you'll find other pieces of the Codex, maybe even on the black market. Okay, that's the official story that people believed for decades. But there's a lot missing to this story. <coughs> because Murad Facham, as a representative of the Aleppo community, would he just readily give the book over to the state of Israel? No. 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 The cheese man. The cheese man was collaborating with the evil Zionists against the interest of his own community. And it came out that there was a trial. This trial was kept secret for 50 years. It's not until Mati Friedman wrote a book on the Aleppo Codex about five years ago that that knowledge of this trial was more widely uh, spread. In the Jerusalem rabbinic court, Rabbinic court, not secular court, rabbinic court, 
There was a trial. The plaintiffs were the Aleppo Jewish community of Israel, representing the Aleppo Jewish communities around the world, versus the state of Israel. In the, in, in the form of Yitzhak Ben Svi, the president. What was the claim? The Aleppo Jews c- claimed that Rabbi Zafrani and Rabbi Tawil told Facham to bring this codex to Israel and to deliver it to Rabbi Dayan, who was the chief rabbi of the Aleppo community in Israel. That would make sense. Right. All right? Rabbis tell the, 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 the courier, who's just the cheese man, to deliver it to their colleague in Israel because it's not safe in Syria anymore. But it's going to stay in the Aleppo community. The Chalabi community. Keter Aram Sova. What do the Israelis claim? So they say that Facham was told by the chief rabbis, you just have to take it with you and deliver it to a religious man, a religious man who will, who will keep it in, in, in good condition and know, how, and know how to appropriately take care of it. Does that sound realistic? No. That sounds like a lie. And it was. But that's where Shlomo Zaman Shragai comes in. Why is he in the picture at all? He should play, play no role. He's just the head of the Aliyah department. The answer is he's a religious man. So they could use his yarmulke and his beard as a cover for stealing the book. All right. No, everyone is long dead. Everyone is long dead. Uh, but the trial lasted for four years. People were subpoenaed, witnesses back and forth. For, finally, a compromise, a pshara was reached, out-of-court settlement. Who was the parties to the trial? The parties to the trial were the state versus the Aleppo community, in the form of Rabbi Dayan. Okay, so the, the compromise was that the, the Crown of Aleppo will have eight trustees, four representing the state, including the president, and four representing the Aleppo community, the chief Rabbi Dayan and a few others, although not the cheese man. He left the country in 1960 in disgrace, uh, hated by his own brethren for what he had done. And if it's four and four, well, that's pretty equitable, right? But no. Where is the book going to be located? At the Ben Svi Institute, which was originally on, at the Hebrew University and then in its own location at the Shrine of the Book in the Israel Museum. Okay, so that means that the, the community of Aleppo, do they control the physical book? Not at all. No. What do the three custodians and three tru- four trustees do for them? Nothing. It's a bluff. It's a, it's a compromise. It's not really a compromise. It's a compromise just to save face. Okay. And in the very first meeting of the trustees, President Ben Sfi got up and made reference to the fact that the community of Aleppo used to own the book. Used to own the book. Lashon Avar. And that was a real knife in the back of the, of the Aleppo Jews. All right, this was theft, plain and simple. Why did it happen? We'll have to wait till the end to explain philosophically why it happened. But the important thing to understand is this was not the only case of theft by Israeli authorities of Middle Eastern Jewish communities. The Yemenites were ripped off blind. They got on the planes. They had never seen a plane before. They were told to pack your Torahs in these containers and you'll get them when we land in Israel. They never saw them again. All right. So, Even their children, maybe. Well, that's uh, another, for, another, for another time, yes. 
So many, many Jews from the Middle Eastern countries, not just Yemen, also Morocco, but and the Codex from Assyria, were taken by either the state or authority figures working for the state, but acting on their own to pocket these items and not give them back to their rightful owners. Were they, were they sold to other, when you say for their own, their own... Private collections, and then possibly for black market. Okay, so this is not the only instance. It happens many, many times over. Okay. The Syrian community is a strong community. Only they would have put up for it. They would have... They, 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 they fought. They, they, they fought in court, but they lost. It's hard to, it's hard to sue in a state court when the state is your counterparty. <laughs> That's true. Okay, so that was one avera. That's one sin. The fact that the Torah, the, the codex was meant to be kept by the Aleppo community and was taken by the state in the form of the Benzfi Institute. Let's go to the second big sin, and that is. The book wasn't held in good condition. One of the theories was, oh, we, the elite Ashkenazim and the academics, need to take it because the primitive, backward Middle Eastern Jews don't know how to preserve ancient manuscripts, where we, we sophisticated intellectuals who have university degrees will preserve it in better condition. Well, in theory, that could have happened. It could have worked out that way. After all, there are ways of preserving books in, 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 with air conditioning and proper lighting and proper humidity. You go to a rare book room in any university library, they know exactly what they're doing nowadays. And I'm sure it's it, it, scientifically better conditions than the grotto in the back of the Aleppo shul. But it didn't work out that way. When the book was taken in 1958, it was held for the next almost two decades in a filing cabinet, in a basic metal filing cabinet with limited or no security other than a lock on a door and no uh, climate controls whatsoever. And although the book was being studied by Bible scholars at the university, there was no serious attempt made to preserve uh, the physical copy so that it decomposed and that pages and pages of information were lost because... The, uh, the, the ink got blurry. Okay, so they didn't want a facsimile edition for the very same reasons that the Aleppo Jews didn't want one. If you make a facsimile edition, then the original becomes less important. So the, the brilliance, just the, the mishagas of the, of the Aleppo Jews was then copied by the academic Jews of, of Jerusalem, not wanting to allow anyone beyond a limited circle to see it and certainly not to copy it. That changed in the 1970s. In 1976, finally, there was a full uh, copies made, microfilm of the, uh, of the whole codex, and eventually uh, a, it was put, in, put out in book form. So today, you can, I have a copy of the Aleppo Codex in book form. Whatever they have. The 295, not the, yeah. The Chumash was not there. Not there, not there. We're going to get to that. Is that the same type of mentality that held the Dead Sea Scrolls from being um, disseminated until, until uh, it was finally put on the computer and put on, on the internet? I, I don't know what the, what the delay was with the Dead Sea Scrolls other than questions about their authenticity and the need for uh, serious study of them before releasing them as opposed to the Codex, where no one doubted that this really was the Aleppo Codex. It was a thousand years old. But I'm sure even with the, with the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, there's an element of that. 
wanting to it's monopolize been knowledge. 60 years well, the, the desire to monopolize, monopolize knowledge uh, is uh, sadly a common thing in academic circles. Yeah, okay. So that was the second big Avera. That the information was lost because of poor, poor handling. Eventually, the book was transferred to the shrine of the book. However, if you go there today, what are the two big artifacts that are on display? There's the Isaiah scroll, which is upstairs, you know, the, the, the circular thing. And then downstairs, there's the open Tanakh, and you see a page of the Aleppo Codex. But the Isaiah scroll is a complete bluff. That's not really the scroll. It's actually in the archives, down, you know, way in the basement. What you're seeing is just the paper copy. And the Aleppo Codex is a piece of plastic. It's a fake thing that looks like a book. Uh, with, the, with the top page actually being a, a, a legitimate page from the Codex. Otherwise, it's just a, a phony tome underneath the, the first page. But that's for reasons of security and preservation. Like, you can't blame them. Okay, what's the big, big sin? The third sin, and the, probably the juiciest of them all. That is, what happened to the missing 200 pages? What happened to the missing 200 pages? The claim had been that they were destroyed in a fire, but then again, the claim had been that the whole thing was destroyed in the fire, and that was a lie. So was it true that anything was destroyed in the fire? Well, scientific experiments were done in the 1980s that proved conclusively that the purple burn marks on the corner of the page, of, of all the pages, were not burn marks. In fact, what were they? Saliva. That people would lick their lip, their tongue, before turning the page. And so the years accumulated of the saliva turned purple, and people thought it was a burn mark, but it really wasn't. The Aleppo Codex did not suffer from fire, but rather theft. Someone stole it. So the question is who stole it? Why not the whole thing? Okay. Alright. Okay. Okay. So when did the book uh, become uh, incomplete? That's the real question. So those who, who studied this topic, who were on the Aleppo Codex trail, they examined the issue very carefully. Who had their hands on it? And what did they say about what they had? So Asher Baghdadi, the synagogue sexton, he and his son claimed they put back the, the, the pages together after the riot. They claimed there were only a handful of pages missing. That they tried their best to get everything they could, but there were still a handful of pages missing. How many? About as much as this. Like, like uh, f- five mil- millimeters. And uh, that would be only about 10 pages worth. Not, n- no more than about 1 or 2% of the whole thing. A few stray pages. So in 1947 then, the book is roughly intact. When Ibrahim Cohen had the book, how much was missing? Well, Edmund Cohen later testified that he wasn't 100% sure but that most of the Torah was there. Now, the Torah, that's the part we're really excited about, because that's the part that's missing currently. So yeah, there may have been missing pieces here and there, but the Torah was intact. Rabbi Shehebar in, our, in Buenos Aires was the chief Aleppo rabbi of South, South America. Significant Aleppo community in South America. He said in 1952, before he snuck out of the country, he was shown the codex from Edmund Cohen. 
and it was entirely intact except for a few stray pages missing. So we have multiple accounts from the 1950s that precede Murad Facham's, uh, the cheese merchant's handling, that the book basically is okay. Then we get to the cheese merchant. Do we think he stole it? No. Nobody really thinks the cheese merchant stole it. Because he was a courier and not a, smart, not a wise man with a sophistication when it came to, to, to books. He was just a convenient guy to, to take it from point A to point B. But who were his handlers? And why did he cooperate? So, that's a big question. Why did he cooperate? He, he was a turncoat. He went against the interests of his people to give it to the Zionists. So one explanation is that the Zionists gave him goodies. An apartment, a salary, a job. Coming to Israel in 1958 to a socialist country as a new immigrant from a Sephardic country uh, without your own resources, it's not an easy thing. But if you have something the government wants, the government can give you all sorts of goodies, freebies. That was one theory. Unsubstantiated. But another thing was very much substantiated. When he came to the port of Haifa, he owed a 5,000 lira customs bill for all of his stuff. He never paid it. It was waived. Why was it waived? To get the codex. What year was this? 1957. So that was about 30 cents a lira at that time. Could be. So that's okay. So even in those days. It was real money. Real money from his, from his point of view. Okay, so you can't steal the whole thing because if you steal the whole thing, the state gets nothing and then the state knows something is wrong. But then the question is, which functionary stole even part of it? Isaac Silo was the man in Alexandretta. Isaac Silo had many, many complaints leveled against him by Syrian Jews escaping through Turkey to Israel that he stole all sorts of things pots and pans, gold and silver, jewelry, manuscripts. Isaac Silo was a Ganov par excellence. And the government knew it. So why didn't they stop him? Because he was good at what he did. And it was more important to get Jews out of harm's way and get them to Israel than it was to stop a petty thief uh, from, from taking their stuff from uh, unsuspecting uh, Jews in transit. Yeah, but, yeah, but is Devarim chapter 26 is the first thing we have. What's in Devarim chapter 26? Yes, so we're going to get to that, yeah. Okay. So Isaac Silo was a Ganif. We can suspect him of taking something. What about Yitzchak Pesel, his handler? Eh, there aren't too many bad stories about him. What about Shlomo Zaman Shragai? He had the book for 18 days. And he lied under oath about why he had it and how it got to him. He claimed he got it on January 23rd and gave it to President Ben Sfi a day later. He had it for 18 days. In 18 days, you know how much you could steal? Yeah. A lot. But I'm not so suspicious of Shraga. Not so suspicious. Yeah. yeah. You know which part of the Torah was stolen? Lotignov. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. So, who else could have been? Yitzchak Ben Svi, the president, I don't think he stole anything. He wanted it for his institute. He doesn't need to pocket it for his own personal archives. Who does that leave us with? Well, there was no record 
of the Torah, of the, the Codex being in any way missing or incomplete until March of 1958, when an, a rough inventory was done and the total number of pages was announced. So something happened before March of 1958, but yet it probably happened after September of 1957, and quite probably happened after January of 1958, because Shragai didn't say that anything was missing. And if we don't think that he stole it, then it happened between January and March. Who had the codex? Who ran the institute? Ben Svi is the president of the state. He doesn't have time to run the affairs of his institute. There's a director. Who's the director? Now we get to the thief. Mayor Benayahu. You never heard of him. Never. Mayor Benayahu was a scholar, had a career uh, later at Tel Aviv University, uh, no, at Bar-Ilan University. He was the son of Chief Rabbi Yitzchak Nisim. Now, on a day when a, a second chief rabbi has been convicted of significant crimes, we can understand that just because you're the son of a chief rabbi doesn't mean you're an honest man. His father was Yitzhak Nisim, was this chief rabbi. His brother, uh, uh, Moshe Nisim, was a cabinet minister in some of the Likud governments in the 1990s. Benayahu di- had a different last name. He didn't like the last name Nisim. He chose Benayahu because he wanted to have a more Israeli-sounding name. And Nisim wasn't, wasn't Israeli enough. He was the, the director of the Institute from 1958 until 1970. He was fired in 1970. Why was he fired? Basically, he stole. He stole a lot of things. Many, many books were, were given over to the Bensvi Institute, and their, their donors, who were Jews from Middle Eastern countries, would years later ask to see their book. You know, they had a receipt signed by President Ben Svi himself that you donated a you know, 16th century Miguel and Esther with such and such a marking on it, and it was going to go into the archives. And then they would go, uh, the clerk, in, let's say in the 1980s and 1990s, would check the computer. Oh, we don't have that. What do you mean you don't have that? I have a signed slip from 1961 that says President Ben Svi said, well, I gave it to you. Oh, it's not in the system. Why is it not in the system? It was never put in the system. It was stolen. So much was stolen. Stolen and put into the pocket of the person who stole it. Some things may have been sold later. Now, okay, so Mati Friedman, the author of the most recent book on the Codex, wrote a letter to, uh, wrote wrote an article accusing Benayahu of theft. He got an angry five-page response from Moshe Nisim, who's still very much alive today. Benayahu died in 2009. Uh, saying, you're defaming my brother, I'm going to sue you. This is a disgrace. My brother was an honest man at Sadiq Gomor, you know? All the uh, possible uh, things you could say to, to uh, bolster the credentials of his brother as being an honest man. And that any, any accusation against him of theft is total falsehood. All right, but it's not falsehood. The guy stole a lot. Whether he stole the codex, I, could, I can't prove it to you, but he stole a lot for sure. Well, did we ever recover this, these pages? Whatever happened to all this? Let's say, let's say Benayahu did steal it. What did he do with it? Where, where did it go? Okay, now we get to the, the most interesting part of it all. Two pages surfaced. Okay. In 1981, one page surfaced. Leon Tawil uh, was there in the riots in 47, and he recovered a page, and he kept, took it with him when he made, immigrated to America. And he lived in Brooklyn for, for the next uh, 32 years, and um, he gave it to his aunt, Mary Hadea. And then the, the family in the early 80s had some uh, medical setbacks and some trouble, some sorrows. 
and they showed it to the rabbi, and the rabbi said, oh, you shouldn't have this, this is, this is you know, a serious property of the kehillah, you know, you have to send it to Israel. It's not supposed to be in the, in the hands of a private individual. So they gave it to the university, it was checked out, it really was from the Aleppo Codex. There was a page found in private possession in Brooklyn all these years. Another one, uh, in 1987, Samuel Sabag, in, a, in an old age home in Brooklyn, older man, showed somebody a slip of, of parchment that he had in a protective plastic case that he kept in his wallet, and it was from Parsha's bow. The page that was, ta- that was from Hadaya was from the Book of Chronicles, from Deber HaYamin. But this was from Parsha's bow, Exodus chapter uh, uh, 11. It was like one line only. And it turned out, upon inspection, it really was from the Aleppo Codex. How did he get it? Who knows? But he got... Now, because there were these two incidents, everyone started to believe that there were more and more of them. That if you, in every, other, every third home along Ocean Parkway, somebody's hiding a piece of the Codex. <laughs> but it's not true. Those were the only two that were ever verified as being real. Now, you could say, well, people don't want to tell anyone because it's, it's personal, it's private. If they reveal it, it loses its charm. I don't think so. I think those are the only two because they really were only two. Or a small, small number. Not that there were hundreds and hundreds of cut-up pieces. The theory was that if you took a page, there are 28 lines, you get three columns, you could chop them up into you know, 70-some-odd pieces, and everybody's got a little talisman in his pocket. That didn't happen. That didn't happen. Okay, but who has it? So there was a talk that a fellow by the name of Shlomo Musayef had. You ever hear of Shlomo Musayef? Never heard of him. So he's one of these multi-multi-multi-multi-millionaire uh, jewelry guys and antiquities guys. A Bukharian Jew who made, to, made it to, to Israel and served in the army in 48, struck it rich in the, in the jewelry business, diamond business, antiquities business, and then split his time between Tel Aviv and London. And, yeah, you met him? No. But, but some of these had an exhibition uh-huh. of his. Right. Amazing of what he had collected. Oh, sure, yeah, yeah. So his, his collection was outstanding. And the rumor was that he knew about where the codex could be located, the Torah portion. So Friedman, the, the author, the journalist, wants to meet Musayef. And it's a cat and mouse game. He's the kind of guy who's in his 80s and lived in the 30th floor penthouse wearing uh, slippers and a bathrobe uh, looking over million-dollar diamonds. You can get the picture. All right? And so, he go, so Friedman meets him, and there's a... Back and forth, you know, a hesitation to reveal any information. There's always a give and take. Each side trying to figure out what the other one knows before they reveal too much. And after several meetings and a trip, a trip to London, Friedman really chased down this guy. Ultimately, Musayef shows him a piece of the Aleppo Codex. A small one-line piece. Friedman falls for it and thinks it's real. Turned out it was fake. But Musayef knew it was fake. He was just uh, playing around with the guy. But there's a bigger story. In 1985, there was a rare book deal, a, a b- rare book convention at the Hilton in Jerusalem. And who goes to these conventions? Who goes to these rare book conventions? Collectors. And who are the guys running around, like, uh, you know, uh, racing around with bags in their hands? The Hasidim. Okay? They're the ones who have the expertise. The, the Haredim have the expertise. They have a lot of the manuscripts. They're not the money people. The money people are the guys in the, in the, in the penthouse on the 30th floor with, with the Kesef. But the Hasidim and the Haredim, they know the books. 
So, a fellow by the name of Chaim Schneebalg <coughs> and an associate of his comes over to Musayef. You met him? A red. A red, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah? Okay. Well, Zichron al-Avrocha. So, so Chaim Schneebalg comes over to Musayef and Musayef's daughter and says, I have something for you. And he shows him in a shopping bag. A shopping bag. Not a, not a, a valise, not a, a, a strong case. A, a shopping bag. Look, look inside. It's about 90 pages worth of what looks like the Aleppo Codex. A million dollars I want. Now, who does he work for? He doesn't own it himself. He's in cooperation with a guy in Vienna. I'm not going to say who that guy is, although I, I've met him, and I know his son-in-law, um, and I don't want to say anything because I don't want to get in trouble. Yeah. But um, he wants a million dollars, Schneebog. Musayev tells Friedman he didn't buy it. He tells him it's worth 300000 I'm not interested. Go away. Friedman's not so sure that Musayev told the truth. He thinks maybe the guy really did buy it, really did pay the million. After all, what's a million to Musayev? It's nothing. And what's the Aleppo Codex worth? It's priceless, priceless. So the story on its surface doesn't make any sense, therefore it's probably false. But the, the idea that he was presented with the Codex isn't so far-fetched. After all, if Benayahu stole it, or someone stole it in Israel, it's not lost in Syria somewhere, then someone, likely at a point in time, purchased it on the, on the black market and might be willing to sell it on the black market. Four years later, Schneebog is nervous. He gets a call to go to the, the, uh, the Sheridan Hotel to a room rented out by uh, Dan Cohen. He goes and never comes back alive. He dies and Dan Cohen didn't exist. Dan Cohen was an alias. No one knows who had the room. He walked into a trap. So, the, so his 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 uh, friends in the in, in the Vishnitz and and Satmar world where he lived said, "Oh no, he had a heart attack and died. Let's bury him. Harazesim. Let's get it over with. No autopsy. No autopsy. But likely he was murdered. His handler in Vienna put out a six million dollar insurance policy on his life a few weeks before." And because there was no autopsy, the European insurance company refused to pay. There was litigation in Israel, and they never paid. Why? Because likely this was a murder. Now, it could have been a heart attack. I mean, the guy weighed 125 kilograms, and his, and his, uh, his uh, uh, physical for the insurance policy said he weighed only uh, 90 kilograms. So probably he never had a physical. It was all a bluff. Most likely he was murdered. Does this have anything to do with the codex? I don't know. I don't know. But Musayev claims that Schneebalg had the codex. Whatever happened to it afterwards? Was he buried with it? He was buried, period. So we don't know. We don't know what happened to it since. Yeah. That first guy that had one page. You're right. The first one we found in Brooklyn. Yeah. Where did he get the one page from? From Aleppo, from the, from, the, uh, the, from the riots. He took it with him. Maybe it's still around somewhere. He took it with him. 47. 47, yeah. Okay, so we don't know where it is. All we can know uh, with some certainty is that it didn't burn in a fire, not the whole thing, not even a significant portion of it, that the Israelis stole it from the community, that the Benzvi Institute and the state handled it poorly and caused damage to it, and that someone in an official capacity probably pilfered a good 40% of the whole book. Now that said, we have to answer one very important question. What moral justification was there for all of this? 
if any. From the state? From the standpoint of the state. They wanted to preserve it. Okay. So that we have to look at... Okay. The state, every now and then, a person who is a VIP will confuse their own interests with what is inherently virtuous. I know such people. Okay? I've dealt with such people. What's good for them is what is good. Uh, Even when it's not, in their mind, that's what is. So, in this instance, the good of (coughs) Am Yisrael, the good of academic science, and the good of Yitzchak ben Svi personally, or Meir ben Ayahu personally, were all conflated. So in the, in the eyes of the president of the state, he wants the glory of having a prestigious institute that has the, the, the most important copies of the Bible on his, you know, his, on his premises. He wants academic research, and he wants what's good for Am Yisrael. All three things he wants, but in his mind, all three are one and the same. Okay, And when, you, when you're dealing with a situation like that, Moral decisions are made that are not very moral. Okay, but more than that. If you're a Zionist, you believe that Medinat Israel is the representative institution of Am Yisrael and is the rightful possessor of the, the patrimony of the diaspora. That whatever was glorious about the old days in Chutz Laaretz should now be preserved in a, in a, in a chutz la'aretz that is being destroyed. The communities of the, the Galut will be no longer. But their great artifacts should come to Medinat Yisrael. And Medinat Yisrael should be the official possessor and owner of these things on behalf of Am Yisrael. That sounds all very nice. And I'm sure there are people in this room who would, who would subscribe to that philosophically. But, not if you're an Aleppo Jew. You see, the Aleppo Jews, and the Jews of the Middle East, generally speaking, were non-Zionist. That's not to say they opposed the State of Israel after it came into existence. Not at all. The State of Israel saved their bacon. And, and say, you know, without Israel, a lot of these people would have been dead. But, but pre-1948, what is Zionism? It's a craziness, a political craziness of Ashkenazim from Poland and Russia, who don't look like me and don't think like me and don't believe like me. So in 1947... 48, 49, or even into the 50s when the, when the transfer happened, 57, 58. Why would a religious, capitalist, non-Zionist, dark-skinned, Sephardic Jew be interested in giving over a religious treasure to a state that is run by communists, irreli- atheists, white-skinned Ashkenazim with a chip on their shoulder? Okay? <laughs> Okay. With that in mind, th- now you can understand why many of the, the Jews of Aleppo, for that matter, broader Syria, the Middle East, didn't go to Israel. To them, Medinat Israel is you know it's a ni- maybe it's a nice place, but they are business people, religious business people with a great culture, and the state of Israel represents irreligion, communism, socialism and a culture that is not theirs, a culture that is the, from, from the shtetls of the, the Pale of Settlement, not from the cities of, uh, of the Levant. And so, better to go to Eastern Park, to Ocean Parkway and Avenue J than to go to Dizengoff Street. The, the, this clash of, of uh, worldviews means that the, the, the uh, 
dispossess, you know, uh, taking away of the codex from a, a, a Middle Eastern Jewish community by the state of Israel is not going to be seen in the eyes of those Middle Eastern communities as an act of charity or justice, but rather just uh, an act of greed, which really it was, because aside from the fact that the state took it, individual people were very, very greedy and grabbed portions. What do I think happened? I believe that there were two major acts of theft, because the beginning of the book is missing and the end of the book is missing. Uh, some of the Chamesh Megillot and Divrei Hayamim are missing at the end and everything in the Torah up until uh, Pashat Kitavo is missing in the beginning most likely Isaac Silo took some of it in Turkey but that nobody's reported anything and that Benayahu and maybe Shragai but I think just Benayahu took a big chunk of it once it got to Jerusalem and that nobody reported it being stolen because it's better not to report these things the Benson Institute and the state, and for that matter, Hebrew University, are not interested in stoking controversy. Every, major, every person, every journalist who tried to investigate the story, from Rafi Sutton in the 1980s to Mati Friedman in 2010, came up against a brick wall. Anyone who was in a position to know didn't want to talk. Not that they didn't know, but what they had to say was really ugly and really disparaging of institutions that we'd rather think were pristine and holy. So that's why information was lost, or was just never revealed. But it was very ugly information. And uh, we'll leave it at that. Okay.